You're listening to a message from South Hills Church in Burbank, California. For more information about South Hills, check out SouthHillsBurbank.com. Good morning. Uh, my name is Dave Stewart. I'm the campus pastor here. And um, it is a, an honor and a privilege um, that you would spend part of your Sunday morning with us. And so uh, I wanted to just say thank you. Um, for doing that, and uh, we really do appreciate it. Um, we started this series, it's hard to believe, back, in, uh, back on Easter. It feels, Easter feels like forever ago, but it was just like four weeks ago. Um, and uh, we started this conversation talking about overcome, overcoming things, and that there's stuff in our life that we simply need to overcome, and that through Christ, who overcame the ultimate obstacle of death, we have been empowered to overcome the things that we have to deal with in life. And there's a lot of things that come our way, the, the unexpected, the, the things that we know are happening, things that we have caused, and they're just, we're, we're now reaping what we've sown, or maybe they're things that are outside of our control. And so today, I, I want to lean in on an idea. We're going to look at a particular person in Scripture and, and kind of see what they went through in their life and how that applies to us. I'm going to try to give you something extremely practical before we walk out of here of a way that you might be able to overcome something in your life this week. Um, and usually I, I start off every message with like, you know, a personal story and kind of give you a little insight into my life and give you an opportunity to just laugh at me uh, or my children. Um, today I, uh, I found a story, so this is not me, um, and I just want to kind of read to you from the actual news article. I've had people challenge me that this is not real uh, so they Google searched me on Saturday night during the whole message, which I was like, um, you should have just been listening to the message instead of just Google searching the whole time. But they did search and they tried to disprove me, but they realized it's a true story. And uh, back in 2008, this, this story was posted in a local newspaper in Kansas, and then it was picked up actually by NBC News, and they kind of did a little piece on it. And it's, it's an unbelievable story. It, it's hard to wrap your brain around what was going on in this situation, and at the same time, it's hard not to laugh a little. And at the same time, it's hard not to let your stomach be turned a little. So if you're a little queasy, I'll just let you know. There's a moment that it goes a little PG-13. And so you might want to, like, just prepare yourself. Start taking deep breaths now. But here's the opening line to the story. Deputies said a woman in western Kansas sat on her boyfriend's toilet for two years. And they're investigating whether she was mistreated. You got me. Like, I'm now intrigued. <laughs> I want to know what the heck you're talking about, so I will continue to read to you. It says, uh, Nest County Sheriff uh, Brian Whipple said that a man called his office last month to report that something was wrong with his girlfriend. You think something might be wrong here? Uh, the question that I have to ask is, why are you waiting two years? Uh, two days on a toilet, and I'm calling the paramedics. Like, I'm... I want to know what's, and you're, it's okay to laugh. Like some of you are like, I don't feel like I can laugh at that. You are allowed to laugh in church. It's okay. <laughs> she was on a toilet for two years and he waited two full years to call the police and say that something was wrong. It says this, that Whipple, the, the sheriff, um, said it appeared that the 35-year-old Nest City woman's skin had grown around the toilet seat. This is your stomach turning part. She initially refused emergency medical services, but was finally convinced by responders and her boyfriend, which I find incredible that he remained her boyfriend this whole time, <laughs> that she needed to be checked out at a hospital. 
So there's all this stuff. They pried the toilet out off of the floor to then try to remove it from her body but couldn't. So they just removed the toilet seat from the toilet, took her and the toilet seat to the hospital. She was not glued. So for those of you that are kind of concerned, like, well, was this, uh, was this a, an abuse situation? She was not glued. She was not tied. She was just physically stuck by her own body. And the sheriff says, it's hard to imagine. I still have a hard time imagining it myself. The man tells investigators that he brought his girlfriend food and water and asked her every day to come out of the bathroom. To which she replied, and this is important, maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. According to him, she did not want to leave the bathroom. So she said that she didn't need any help. She was okay, and she didn't want to leave the restroom. So the case was just baffling to people. They were, they were talking to everyone they could, every neighbor, and they finally find a neighbor who hadn't seen her in six years come out of her home. So there's obviously some other things going on. There's some other things at play here. And this neighbor said, I didn't think anybody, I don't think anybody can make any sense out of it. And then his closing statement, which just baffles me, he says, it doesn't really surprise me, which I don't understand what that means. Like, what part of the story does not surprise you? That she, that she was sitting on a toilet for two years? Like, had this already happened at some point previously? That she was on the toilet for a long time? I don't know what part doesn't surprise him. But what he says is what surprises me is that somebody wasn't called in a bit earlier. Somebody wasn't called in a bit earlier. You think, Ellis, that's the neighbor, like you think somebody should have been called in a bit earlier? Yes. And this is, to me, this is, there's so many questions. And if you are this person who did this and you just happen to be here this morning, I would love to talk to you afterwards. I have questions that um, do not get answered by the news stories. But I'm just, I'm just amazed and I'm baffled for several reasons. One, where was, no sense of community around her. There weren't people checking in on her. It was just her and a boyfriend like, where was the sense of, of belonging and connectedness? And so that, to me, just kind of screams out. But the statement that she made, maybe tomorrow, is what really sticks out to me. This idea that she felt stuck for whatever reason, physical or just mental or psychological, she felt stuck where she was. In a situation that was out of her control, and so she thought. And so for her, everything was maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow I'll get help. Maybe tomorrow I'll come out. Maybe tomorrow I'll get unstuck from this situation. Maybe tomorrow. And what's challenged my way of thinking and where we're going to go this morning with this is that there's areas in all of our lives that at times we feel stuck. We feel stuck in a place that maybe might be out of our control. It might be out of our ability to move forward. Maybe it's something that we didn't cause ourselves. Maybe it's something in your marriage or it's something in your financial situation or it's something just physically that you seem to not be able to get past. Or maybe it's something spiritually that you're having a hard time getting to a certain place because you just feel stuck where you are. And for you, this morning, you just keep repeating this phrase, maybe tomorrow. You know, maybe tomorrow we'll fix our marriage. Maybe tomorrow I'll get out of debt. Maybe tomorrow I'll stop spending. Maybe tomorrow I'll go to the gym. Maybe tomorrow I'll start reading my Bible. Maybe tomorrow I'll repair a relationship with my dad. Maybe tomorrow I'll repair a relationship with my kids. Maybe tomorrow I'll work on that. Maybe tomorrow. So the question for you this morning, and the question I want you to wrestle with is this. What if today is your tomorrow? What if today is your tomorrow? Like, what if instead of waiting another day and asking the same question, 
What if today you made the decision to press forward? What if today was your day to say, this is my tomorrow, and I will no longer be stuck by this? What is your quote-unquote toilet seat that you feel stuck to, that you can't get past? See, last week we talked about our, our nature, our personality, and how sometimes there's a piece of us that we have a hard time getting past. So we had this conversation last week about an, an, an internal obstacle. But this week, the obstacle is external. It's a part of just what's happening in life around us. It's the things that come our way that we necessarily don't always get to control. Something that's preventing us from moving forward. It's a, it's a financial issue. It's a physical disability. It's a lack of authority to make decisions in your life. Sometimes there's just simply something holding us back, and we want to take control, but we simply don't feel like we can. So what do you do? What do you do when you feel like you're constantly bumping up ever felt thing that is out of your control? I don't know if you've ever felt like you're just waiting on God to do something before you can do your thing in life. There's this thing that you feel compelled to do. Maybe there's this dream, there's a passion, there's something inside of you where you feel like you want to go in this direction, you want to do this thing, you want to accomplish something, but you feel like you're just waiting on God to fix something first. Well, I can't move forward until God fixes his thing, and if he doesn't fix his thing, then I simply can't move forward in mine, so I'll just sit here in a holding pattern. I'll stay stuck in this place until he does his part. What I want to challenge you with this morning is what if God has already done his part? What if God did his part and he's simply waiting on you to do your part? There's a story surrounding a man by the name of Paul. It's the Apostle Paul, the author of the majority of the New Testament Bible that we have. Paul was this guy who spent his whole life trying to persecute the church. He he hated Christians. He wanted to squash this entire Jesus movement that was spreading across the known world at the time. And Paul was empowered to shut this thing down. So he was arresting and persecuting and killing Christians left and right. He was finding their leaders. He was sniffing them out and he was discovering who they were and he was putting them in prison. And, and he basically had the mission to shut it down. But somewhere along Paul's journey, he has this encounter with God it's called the Damascus Road Experience. So on his road to Damascus, he has this God encounter, this Jesus moment. And his entire life has changed. Over the course of days, he realizes that his real purpose in life was something much different, much greater. And instead of being the guy that persecuted the church, he was the guy that then started to spread the church. He started to go around and preach the gospel. He, he went and started to teach about the name of Jesus rather than squash people that did. So Paul becomes the, the main influencer at the time of the Christian church. He's planting churches. Everywhere he goes, he's planting new churches. And so the New Testament is really a grouping of letters that Paul had written to the churches. So the book of Romans is the letter to the church in Rome. The book of Ephesians is the letter to the church in Ephesus. And what we're going to look at this morning is several different passages, but we're going to start in 2 Corinthians, which would have been his letter to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to lean in on something that's happening in Paul's life. This man of God, this guy that's spreading the message of Jesus everywhere he goes. And he says this in chapter 12. Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. 
So there's some ailment, there's something going on that Paul has come to recognize that this thing, this thorn in his flesh, this physical ailment has been given to him, it's been allowed to happen, is to keep him humble, is to help him realize that he shouldn't be prideful in what is happening around him. But he says this in verse 8, three different times, three different times, I begged, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. If there was ever a person in the New Testament that I think should just have the ear of God, that if they ask for something, God just does it, it would have been Paul. Paul would have been the guy that should be able to pray something, and it just happens. He's the guy going around and preaching the message. He's spreading the church. He's planting new churches. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are coming to Christ because of Paul. He's doing what God had called him to do. He's, he's in the middle of his mission, in the middle of his purpose, in the middle of who he was supposed to be. And when he asks God to remove this thing from him, God does it. And it, it, it challenges my thinking to wonder why God wouldn't respond in removing this thing from Paul. You see, there's a lot of speculation on what this ailment was. There's different people that think different things. Maybe it was a, a chronic thing or a debilitating thing or it was just an obstacle between him and his calling. People think that it could have been multiple things because most of us in this room, we face multiple challenges in life to achieve our purposes. And, and so maybe it was just a bunch of different things. Maybe it was because of the things that Paul had been through. For instance, he traveled extensively. Maybe he picked something up along the way. Maybe he contracted some type of disease in his travels. He got malaria or malta fever. Or he has convulsive attacks. Who knows what's going on in Paul's life or his body. Maybe it's something that had to do with the severe beatings he took on a regular basis, preaching the message of Jesus. In Acts chapter 14, we actually find out something that Paul had to go through. It says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, a stoning is not like this, you know, we're going to teach him a lesson kind of experience. Like, we just want you to learn, Paul, and then stop doing what you're doing. You stoned someone because you wanted them dead. And so they would have placed Paul in a certain location. A bunch of people, a bunch of men would have come out. Probably the religious leaders at the time would have come out. They would have had large rocks, large stones, and they would have started to hurl them at Paul as hard as they could throw. And they're not trying to hit him in the, in the feet or the shins or the knees. They're aiming for Paul's face. They're trying to hit him in the head and put him out. And so they had stoned him to the point where they believe him to be dead, so they drag his body out of the city. Maybe that had something to do with his physical ailments. We don't know. But what we do know, when you read through, especially the book of Acts, you start to learn that Paul was losing his eyesight. And that could have been the thorn in his flesh. Paul was losing his eyesight. He was going blind. And this guy who had been called by God to travel the world, to spread the message of God to everyone that he could, is now losing his eyesight. So Paul has one of these moments. I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments in your life where maybe you have gone to somebody and you have tried to complain, especially to somebody older than you. When you try to complain about your life and how difficult you know, your Wi-Fi signal is or you know, <laughs> that you're having a hard time with something and... And they usually will throw something back to you from their life. And you quickly realize that your life is not that difficult compared to theirs. 
you know, my grandfather and would always tell me his journey to school, you know, barefoot, in the snow, uphill both ways, that whole conversation. I'm like, Grandpa, you grew up in Southern California. You, uh, you've never seen snow a day in your life. Like, you don't even know what you're talking about. But anyway, I, I trusted him. But I realized that my issues weren't that bad. And Paul is going to have one of these moments. He's going to have one of these reflective kind of grandfather moments because the Christians at the time are complaining. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, check this out. Paul says this. He says, are you Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. In other words, I have been a better Christian than all of you. That's what Paul is saying, because they're complaining about what's going on and the persecution, the hardships in front of them. He then wants to kind of paint a perspective for everyone in the room. So he continues. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number. I have faced death time and time again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes because they couldn't give 40, so they would stop at 39. Five different times, though, he received 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with rocks, not the other on. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys and I have faced dangers from rivers and robbers. I have faced dangers of my own people, the Jews, and from uh, and all as, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced dangers in the cities. I've faced danger in the desert and at seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, and during many sleepless nights, I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then, besides all of this, as if that wasn't enough, I have the daily burden of my concern for all of the churches. So when you think life has been bad and difficult for you, let me just tell you, Paul would say, about life. Let me paint for you a realistic picture of what I have had to endure so that I could preach the message of Jesus. So on top of all the physical beatings, going hungry, being cold, being lost at sea, I also have to worry about all of you. And that's what keeps me up at night. See, this whole list of all these things Paul has had to endure, this This is him trying to paint a picture for all of the other Christians. And so we know that Paul's going through something. We know he's facing some type of ailment. We know that there's a thorn in his flesh. We know that he's prayed about it, but it has not been removed. We know Paul's losing his eyesight. We know he's losing his eyesight because Acts 23 tells us a story of of a high priest named Ananias who calls out Paul, and he tells the people around Paul to slap him in the mouth because of what Paul is, is preaching. And Paul goes off on the high priest, and he says, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? To which the people standing near to Paul say, do you dare insult God's high priest? Now, if people thought like Paul was just a jerk and he was just going to shoot off at the mouth, he would not say this next statement. Verse 5, he says, I'm sorry. He apologizes for what he had said because I didn't realize he was the high priest. For the scriptures say, you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. So Paul, being a man of God, understanding what the, the, the law of God had stated, being a respectful person of authority, Paul would have never spoken out the way he just did 
to the high priest. He would have known who the high priest was. High priest stuck out like a sore thumb. He would have been in a robe. Paul was a former Pharisee. He knew who this guy was. But because Paul was losing his eyesight, he couldn't see who it was that said what they said. So he reacted to a person who he believed was just a random person calling him out, not realizing it was actually the high priest. And so we know, we know what Paul is going through. We know what he's faced in his life. We know that this thorn in his flesh. We know that he has to be frustrated. We know that there has to be these moments of self-consciousness and doubt. In Galatians chapter 4, we, we read this. You know, it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given to me. So Paul is literally saying, look, I know that you guys care for me. And I know that if you could, you would gouge out your own eyes and give them to me. Because you understand what I'm going through. You see what it's doing to me. And so this would seem to be an insurmountable obstacle in front of Paul. In front of a person who reads, who is educated, who studies, who teaches, who writes, who travels extensively, which means walked everywhere he went for a living to spread the gospel to the people of the world. So the question then pops up. How is Paul going to actually do what God called him to do if he can't see? How is Paul going to accomplish this purpose that God had put in front of him, this mission that Jesus has called him to? How is Paul going to do the very thing that his whole life is going to be about? You would think that at some point the issue is just frustrating. It's embarrassing. It's limiting his ability to do what God's called him to do. And it wasn't his fault. It likely he would have spent time wishing that it never happened. And that's actually what he tells us, that he begged God to heal him on multiple occasions, but God never did. So, is Paul's dream over? Is Paul's purpose just done? Is Paul's potential just squashed? No. In fact, Paul had a greater impact on the world after he began to lose his eyesight. Than he did before. Paul had a greater impact on the world after this thorn in his flesh appeared. So we have to wonder why. How could somebody accept this obstacle? How could somebody accept this thing that would usually stick anybody else in their tracks? I think we have to understand that Paul doesn't give up on what he's called to do. He simply gets creative with how he does it. And so what Paul begins to do is find a creative way to do what he feels God has called him to do. He knows that God called him to reach the world, to spread the gospel to to everywhere he can, to plant new churches, to reach thousands upon thousands of people. So how do you do that being a man that can't see, that can't travel, that can't go where he needs to go? Well, you begin to write. You begin to bring in scribes and people to write down your words as you speak them. You begin to find creative ways of getting people and couriers to travel with your letters to take them to the churches that you have planted all over the the Mediterranean basin at the time. And so that's what Paul did. 
Paul surrounded himself with people and he would speak his words and they would write them down as letters and that's how the letters got to the churches and that's how the church began to grow and be encouraged. That's how they learned was Paul speaking and someone else writing and then you can find in multiple, uh, multiple books, Paul would actually pen the last sentence of his letter with his own hand. So it would have been scribbled, kind of uh, just scribbled writing that the person probably couldn't even make out. But it was Paul making sure that everyone knew that the words prior to that final sentence were words that he had spoken. And so they could authenticate the letters because it was the last phrase was written in Paul's own hand and signed in his own signature. And what you and I have to understand about faith is that faith is this refusal to allow our limited options to limit our potential. That when you and I begin to understand what faith really is, It's saying that I'm not going to allow anything to get between me and the potential that God has put inside of me. And in those moments of my weakness, in those moments of my question, in the moments of my doubt, I'm going to believe that God has a bigger plan at play. I'm going to believe that there's something greater than the external force in front of me. I believe there's going to be something that's going to allow me to become unstuck from this situation and I will be able to overcome it. That's faith. So how does Paul respond to all of this? We actually find out at the end of that first passage we read in in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 9 and 10, he says this, that each time he asked God to remove this thorn from his flesh, this was God's response. God's response was, my grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness. This is, think of it, this is Paul. This is the Apostle Paul's words, him saying this to the church. I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure. I enjoy my weaknesses and in the insults. I enjoy hardships. I enjoy persecutions. I enjoy troubles that I suffer for Christ. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul understood something that you and I struggle to understand. Because our culture says that, it has, that when we feel weak, we are weak. And that your strength comes from you. And that if you want to achieve something, if you want to get through something, you're going to have to muster it all up within yourself because you are the only person that's going to be able to get you over the top. And Paul understood that his weakness was going to be a sign of God's strength working through him. And that in his moments of weakness and his moments of insults and his moments of hardship and persecution, he counted himself worthy. He found pleasure in being beaten and tortured and left adrift at sea because he saw himself worthy to suffer hardship for the cause of Christ. Because he knew that somehow through that situation, something great was going to come out of it. He didn't see it. He didn't know what it was, but he knew something would happen. It was his faith. It was his faith that propelled him past the trials, past the obstacles. See, oftentimes what we need to understand is that we need to accept our weaknesses. You and I need to accept our weaknesses, our faults, our failures, and we need to wait for God's strength to be made perfect in us. That when I find myself in a place where I don't know what to do, I see it as an opportunity for God to do something that I never expected. 
so I can sit back and I can anticipate. Man, God, I can't wait to see how you're going to do this. I can find pleasure. I can find joy in those moments because God is going to do something that I could not have done on my own. And he's going to do it through me. See, Paul didn't need to have his eyesight repaired in order to have an impact on the world. Paul didn't know that he was actually writing the New Testament Bible at that time. And oftentimes you and I can't see what's at play in the moment. We don't see what God's doing in us and through us in the moment, but God is working something incredible behind the scenes for us. So this morning, you may feel like you're waiting on God to do something. And I would challenge you, what if he already has? What if God already has inspired you? What if he already has gifted you? What if he already has blessed you to do exactly what it is that you need to do? And what God is doing is waiting on you to recognize and to realize what he has done. And that in your moment of weakness, he wants to make his strength perfect in you. Somebody sent me an email early this morning that was at service last night and they, uh, they asked me, um, hey, not in these words, but did you just tell me to uh, poop or get off the pot? Is what, they, is what they said in their email. And I laughed at first and I'm like, wow, uh, yeah, I guess that's exactly what I said in some way or another. And I think that's what we're being challenged with today is that there's things that happen in life that are out of our control. And you can either sit behind it and just reserve yourself to stay stuck on your quote-unquote toilet for the rest of your time. Or you can realize that God wants to be made perfect through your weakness. That he wants to take you and all of your brokenness and all of your issue and all of your challenge and all of your failures and all of the obstacles and work through all of your weaknesses to make his strength perfect. So that people no longer see what you're doing, they're seeing God doing something through you. So something very practical that I would challenge you with this week is to just take a moment. Take a moment and write down whatever it is. Take a moment and write down the goal. Take a moment and write down the the purpose, the potential, the thing that you feel like God is wanting you to accomplish. The thing that just keeps you up at night at times. It wakes you up in the middle of the night. The thing that you just come back to in your thoughts over and over again. What is the thing that God is wanting you to do? The thing he's calling you to do? And then write down all the reasons, all the excuses that you make for not being able to accomplish it. So make, make two lists. Write down your goal and then write down all of the reasons why you can't accomplish it. And then bring a friend in, bring a close friend in, maybe from a growth group or accountability person or somebody that would be able to hold you to task and ask them to no longer allow you to make those excuses anymore. Just let somebody in to take away all of your excuse and get creative and find a way to accomplish whatever it is that God with your kid to do. If he is purposing you right now to do something to fix your relationship with your kids or your relationship to your parent or your relationship to a spouse, if he is propelling you to get out of debt and he's purposing something in you, if he's asking you to reach your neighbors or your coworkers and invite them to church or give them an opportunity to understand who he is, stop making the excuse. 
get creative and allow his strength to be made perfect through your weakness. Thanks for taking some time to listen to this message. We hope that you've been blessed and encouraged by it. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay updated on all that's happening at South Hills Burbank.